Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Way than maybe is normally approached. Because I feel that there is something, as we'll see, very fundamentally needed to understand that John is talking about and that the people to whom he is writing understand. We do understand that we have this information, but I wanted to bring it to the forefront. Because what I think is that too much of what we teach biblically, what we talk about God, what we talk about ourselves, what we talk about in relation to obedience and to worship, everything and anything about our relationship with God has not and is not being underpinned sufficiently with a fundamental truth about God that we need to have. And so this morning, hopefully, we'll just quickly address that. We don't have the time to go into a lot of detail. Hopefully, we'll do a teaching, uh, one series of four, five, six, seven lessons concerning this issue, which we'll develop in just a moment. <clears throat> but I feel that this is the most fundamental issue of Christianity. Everything about Christianity rests on what we'll talk about this morning, is a result of and is a display of what we'll talk about this morning. Nothing is more basic concerning God than what we'll discuss this morning. And so this needs to be the very flavor and the very accent, the very atmosphere which motivates us, which empowers us, which gives us reason, which gives us the goal, where we've been, how we're doing, what we're doing, why we're doing it, and all the other things. Everything <clears throat> about our relationship with God and with one another, everything needs to be saturated and permeated with what we're going to talk about today. So hopefully that tells you this might be an important class. Now, we're going to go through this material very quickly, but at least I think it will be an introduction to us to get us going. Father, thank you so much. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you've done. And Father, we thank you for what you have done and your mighty works because through your works, we know you. Father, without your works you would always remain far away a mystery unknown and we could never have had fellowship with you so father thank you for shining the light of glory the revelation of who you really are and what you have really done into each of our hearts Father, this morning as we continue with this, we ask you to do an even deeper shining, getting into the recesses of our minds and our hearts and of our understandings, of our knowledge and of our will, so that, Father, this morning we will leave here knowing you in a better way, a greater way, being motivated by who you are to open our hearts to you. So that who you are may be more consistently and powerfully demonstrated in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, last week, you remember that, by the way, if you were not here last week or even if you want a CD from last week, just let the office know and we'll provide those. Remember last week we saw that the incarnation, you remember what the incarnation is? It is the Son of God becoming a man. So last week we saw that the incarnation is the very heart and power of the gospel, which John deals with 
in the first four verses. Remember, that which was from the beginning. We've heard, we've seen, we've touched, we've beheld, we've been with him. He's with the Father. He's the Son of God. He's a real man. The incarnation is set forth in those first verses. And like any good presentation of the gospel, John makes fundamentally an issue here that the incarnation is the reason and the power and the substance and the goal of the gospel. So last week we saw the incarnation is the very heart and power of the gospel as the divine son takes upon himself our fallen humanity. I just have biblical references here that you can look up at other times. He takes on our fallen humanity, yet he remains without personal sin. And he suffers for us God's just punishment for our sin as if it were his. He suffers in a way that God deals with Jesus on the cross as if Jesus had literally and actually sinned because Jesus becomes our representative and our substitute. And he does this in order to pay the full penalty of the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sins so that we who were so guilty could become declared as not guilty to be just, to become the beloved children of God. We saw that last week. Now, having declared the incarnation of Jesus, John has stepped and has begun to declare and open to us <coughs> the very deepest mystery about God. Remember Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the deep things belong to God. Well, this is the deepest thing. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the one quintessential, most fundamental issue, revelation, truth about God that there is, what would you say? What would you say? What is the basic issue, the quintessential, most fundamental, central issue issue about God that there is what would you say that's what we're going to talk about a little bit today you see in verses 1 and 3 you remember John has said two essential things about the Lord Jesus you remember in verse 1 he said that Jesus is divine that which was from the beginning you remember the word beginning here in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth Genesis 1 1 in the beginning was the Word, and the word, word was with God, and the Word was God, John chapter 1, 1. In the beginning, that which was in the beginning in 1 John 1, 1. It's a Hebrew term, idiomatic, euphemistic term, which means he has always been. He is here, always. This is an eternal being that we're talking about. So immediately John begins, Jesus is eternal. He's divine. Because only a divine being can be eternal. Only an eternal being can be divine. That's why the Jehovah's Witnesses are wrong. A created being cannot be divine. It, a created being cannot be reflective of absolute godness when there was a time when this eternal, this being Jesus did not exist. Because in order to reflect exactly God, he also has to be exactly eternal as God is eternal. You see where they're wrong. They're wrong. They have created a different gospel, a gospel that won't save. And the second thing that he says is Jesus is not alone. Immediately he says this. In the beginning was what? That which was in the beginning. In verse 3, this one who was in the beginning, what does verse 3 say? What does verse 3 say? Are you all open to the, uh, the chapter? 1 John chapter 1, verse 1 through 4. What does verse 3 say? He was what? With 
the Father. Ah, he was with someone. He's not alone. Now, there is the point. There it is right there. You see, we read the Bible and we move through this thing fast because we want to get to the good stuff. This is the most powerful revelation that there is about God. Jesus Christ not only is the divine son, but he's not alone in his divinity. This is what separates Christianity from every other religion in the world. There is no religion like this one. Not because Jesus died, but because of this fact. Because out of this fact comes everything about God and everything that he does. In this fact comes everything about God and everything that he does is anchored in and the result of this fact. Jesus is not alone. In saying this, John is telling us something absolutely unique about the true God that no other religion teaches. By declaring that Jesus is divine, that he is with the Father, Jesus is saying that God is not a single person God, but a plurality within himself. How many is plural? Two or more. Remember your English, singular, plural. Plural is what? Two or more. So minimally, John is saying minimally, immediately, immediately and minimally, John is defending the gospel. He's defending the faith. And he doesn't start off defending the faith by Jesus died for you, Jesus loves you. He doesn't do that because there's something much more important about God than starting at that point. Now, that doesn't mean you don't start a conversation, you know, God, Jesus died for our sin, but, but you must get to the fundamental point and the issue about Christianity, which separates this religion from the Muslim and, uh, and all the Abudan and, and, and all the other isms out there. Everything depends upon this point. He's not a single person God. Every other religion has single-person God or single-person gods. You got five gods up there, all single persons. Or you have one God, Allah, a single person. And that can't be. It's impossible for that to be. And we'll show why that's impossible for that to be as we go through 1 John. How can that be impossible? Because of one verse that John declares to you. I'll give you a hint. It's in chapter 4. But we'll get there later. The impossibility of this being true of a single person God you see this means that the gospel is the revelation that the one God exists as three persons now John only tells us two at this point but he begins here and he's going to elaborate and enlarge in verses 2 to three, we learn that the incarnation is not only the heart and power of the gospel, we also learn that the incarnation is possible only because God's Trinitarian nature. Apart from God's triunity, three in one, there would be no gospel. There would be no creation. There would be no God. You haven't thought of this, have you? How many of you have not thought of this? I mean, it's okay to raise your hand. Apart from the triunity of God, there would be no God. And you need to think about that. I can see by your, I don't know. This is absolute. This is absolute. This is not just something that nice talk about. This is absolute. 
Remember last week I told you I was narrow-minded? There's only one thing to believe about God. The very existence and power of Christianity. And we're just talking about Christianity. This goes to everything in life, but at least Christianity is the result of and the revelation of this central truth about who God is within himself. Apart from this truth, there is no Christianity. You see, the central truth of Christianity is not the cross. It may be the central revelation of who God is, but it's not the central truth. It is a revelation of a deeper truth. Do you see this? Are you seeing this today? So when you go out of here, don't say, Peter said the cross is not important. Don't do that. The cross is the result of and the proclamation of the greatest single truth that there is, that our God is not a single person God. How could Jesus die if he's God and if he's a single person God? How can a single person God die? Anybody here with me today? Think it through. Think it through. Apart from this truth, no Christianity. It is the basis and reason for God's creativity, for his love, his mercy, our salvation, and our hope. The reality of God's triune nature is introduced in the Old Testament. We begin to see it in the Old Testament. And it remains in the shadows until the full light of the gospel is revealed. Remember Hebrews 1.1 was the same. God spoke all kind of shadowy different ways. You know, he's kind of speaking in, in, in types and in shadows. Remember what Hebrews 1.1 says? Then verse, I think it's 2, it says, But in these last days he has spoken to us in Son. In the Old Testament, the triunity of God is introduced, but is kept in the shadows until the brilliance of the light of truth breaks in. So let's look at it. And by the way, you're going to find the sermon this morning tracks some of this, but that wasn't my fault. It just happened that God put the two together. God's triunity has begun to be real, revealed in Genesis 1.1. You might turn there if you'd like, but I'm going to go ahead as you're turning. Now, you would say, I thought God's triunity was introduced in the, in the New Testament. Isn't it amazing that so many people think Genesis is just a made-up story by a bunch of old people years ago, and they came up with this wishy-washy goofball story that God did something in six days, and now we have this and all of that kind of stuff. When you delve into what these verses are telling us, they are telling us absolutely what man could not have conceived in his own ability. Are you with me on this? There is revelation and understanding and teaching here that no other religion has. Why do we, Judaism and then coming forth into Christianity where it becomes full blossom, why do we have this? Because God has put it together and has given it to us by revelation in his word correct okay so verse one in the beginning god the hebrew for god there is what and and and, and if you want to you may write in your bibles a bible is a textbook to be used as a reference in the beginning god the word is elohim the singular for god is el elohim is plural now, that throws people, but, well, maybe that means this, or maybe that means this, and it's the word for intensity, and it is. But there's something much deeper here, much deeper than just we want to accentuate, and this writer is accentuating God. Oh, yes, but it's much deeper. So that's the first thing. We get a plural 
Secondly, we see a threefold activity of God in creation. Creation is done three different ways. First thing is what God created. Do you see that? In the beginning, God. Second thing, the Spirit of God did what? He hovered or vibrated over the formless what? Earth, right? The waters. Remember that? And third, God said. Remember last week I said a person, my being, your being, my will is put into action, let's say, through a spoken word. Notice that God didn't think the creation into being. You see, anybody writing this from a goofball theology would not have emphasized these things. They just, God made the world. Violet, God just made the world, babes. That's it. This writer, inspired by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is telling him, this creation is done by a God who is three persons. Each person having a specific and distinct yet cooperative activity with the others, creating, right? So I am one person. I have a will, so I will to say something. Then I say it, but in order for me to say it, where's Kenneth Belton? Stand up again, brother. Come on. You did it last week. You won't know. How many think he was great last week? He was incredible. Now say, without taking a breath, without taking a breath, say, Jesus loves me. I'm going to hold my breath and tell you Jesus loves me. I will hold my breath and say it. How many of you heard me? It needs breath. My being to do something. Thank you. I have a will, my purpose. I speak that will, but in order for me to speak it and make it audible and real, it has to have breath, all three. You have all three. Then the next activity of the triunity or the next revelation of threeness is in the first 26 verses. I think I have that down here, don't I? Yeah, in verses 5, 10, and 26. Look at verse 5. Genesis 5. What pronoun do you see in verse 5? Remember the pronouns he, she, it, we, they, our, them, who? Remember those? Some of you who didn't study English should have studied English. What pronoun do you see in verse 5? Say it again. How many of you see a pronoun in verse 5? Say it. I didn't hear it. He. You see, if, what is he? Plural or singular? What? Singular. Okay, now the, Al, that makes sense. God, he. But it doesn't make sense. God's he. But okay, we have a literary device here. Okay, I can give you a literary device. This is a poetic literary device. This is one of the arguments. That's what it is, so we can go with it. What does verse 10 say? What, what kind of a pronoun do you have in verse 10? Do you have he again? You have he again. You have two he he's. Okay, this makes sense. A God, he. But then everything hits the wall in verse 26. You have two different pronouns in 26. What are they? Us and our. Now, are those singular or plural pronouns? They're plural. Where did that come from? Who the us and who the our? Well, that's the majesty. What is it called? The majesty of plurality. That didn't exist in those days. That began to exist in the 1300s A.D. The majesty of plurality began to exist. Occasionally you'd have that. But, so they say, oh, well, but it's intensity. Well, it is, but, but it means something much deeper. Who is this our? 
and us. You see, listen to this. The he, listen to this and write it down. Verses 5 and 10 and 26 of Genesis 1. The he is a we. Do you think that some ding-dong guy under a tree six, 7,000 years ago would have been able to put this together? How many of you think some polytheistic, ignorant of all the majesty of the world and the universe and everything else could have put this together? How many of you really think that? It either is from God or aliens came in here to give it to us. And I don't believe in aliens until I look around the room and then, well, <clears throat> now. <laughs> uh, exactly. You see, the Old Testament fiercely defends monotheism. You know what monotheism means? Mono means one. Theism means what? The study of God or Godness. So the Old Testament is fiercely monotheistic. One God. Allah. One God. Judaism and Islam is fiercely monotheistic. Christianity is monotheistic. Theirs is a single person monotheism. Ours being a revelation of real truth is a Trinitarian monotheism. So the Old Testament is monotheistic. What does Deuteronomy 6, 4 say? It's the great Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord our is one. Now that word one in the Hebrew, is it in your notes? Did they put the Hebrew word in your notes? Well, the word in the Hebrew, I'll spell it for you. The word for one in the Hebrew is this. E-C-H-A-D, echad, E-C-H-A-D. That's the Hebrew word for one. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It means a variety of things. It means one and only. It means the most important of first. And it also means unity. Now, what does that mean? Deuteronomy 6, 4 says, God is one. Okay, does it mean singular or unity? Well, turn to Genesis 1, 24. I'm sorry, 2, 24. Well, you're going to wear out your hands today on this. What is Genesis 2, 24? Someone read Genesis 2, 24 for me. I've never heard of it before in my life. Say, somebody read it. Just belt it out now. They, how many they? How many in they? Two. So at least we have two. Two. Husband and wife, they become what? It's the same word that's used in Deuteronomy 6 4. It doesn't mean one singularity, it means one in unity. It means in the one, there are two. They become one in the sight of God. They are so joined together that God now considers them and declares them to be one. But they're not one. They're two. But they're one. So look at my hand. Look at me. They're this and this. They're two, but what? Turn it around the other side and what? One. They're two, but they're what? One. At the same time. This is what Genesis is telling us. This is what it's telling us. Immediately, the Holy Spirit gives to Moses, the author, the revelation in mysterious and shaded ways, shrouded until the truth fully can be revealed in Christ. <clears throat> I am different, unique. I am holy, totally other than any other being in all creation. What makes me this? 
not because I do this, that, but because of who I am in myself. That's the essence of the holiness, the uniqueness of our God, that in himself, he is absolutely forever different than any other creature being in all creation forever. That's the essence of his holiness, his kadash, his other thanness. Not only he's eternal and he knows everything and he's all powerful, those are simply attributes of his absolute uniqueness of person. Are you hearing me today? We need to think differently about Christianity. We need to think clearly and truthfully and fundamentally about this issue of our God. We need to skate and dig down deeper. <clears throat> you see, therefore, throughout the Old Testament, God appears in different roles, in different roles, doing, it, doing one thing or a thing, but through different persons of the Godhead. He appears as a spirit of God. Remember, the spirit of God came upon Samuel, or the spirit of God came upon Saul, rather, or the spirit of God anointed this person, the spirit of God went over the waters. Remember all that? So you had the spirit of God. But you also, you, so you have a person of God, a person of God, a personality doing something in these verses. But also you have theophanies. You know what a theophany is? It's an appearance of God in a physical form, okay? It's an appearance of God in a physical form. That's what a, a theophany is, God in a physical form. You have a theophany. Let's turn to Joshua chapter 5. This is just one of many, Joshua chapter 5. You remember the story, they're about ready, they, they've crossed over to the Jordan, Joshua's led the nation over, he's ready to take them into the battle and all of that, he's getting ready and so on. In Joshua chapter 5, verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, remember they're about ready to attack, they're about ready to go against Jericho. Verse 13, when Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold a man. Can you underline that word, a man? He sees a man standing there, two legs, two arms, a head, chest, you know, eyes, nose, ears, a man. He sees a man with his sword drawn in his hand. Okay, here's a guy who has a sword, probably in armor. Okay, a guy. Maybe he's an angel. Okay. And Joshua went to him and said, very, very smart, Joshua said, you for us or for them? <laughs> man, if you for them, we leave him. Are you for us or them? Who are you? What you doing here? And the man said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord or the captain of the hosts of the Lord. In Hebrews, it's called the captain of our salvation, capital C. Now I have come, and Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? Now this still could be an angel because people fall to the ground for angels, correct? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from off your feet for the place where you're standing is holy ground. Where have you read that before? Where have you read that before? You saw it in a movie called The Ten Commandments. Where have you read it? Where? 
Compare Exodus 3.5. What is Exodus 3.5? Moses walks and sees this bush that is burning but is not being consumed. And he says, I am the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says in verse 5, what? Take off your shoes from your feet, for the ground on which you stand is holy ground. This is none other who is speaking to Joshua than the very God of glory who spoke to Moses from the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. How do we know that? Because an angel can never say this to a man. An angel would immediately say to a man, every time we see the evidence, stand up, I'm but a created creature like you. I am not the Lord. Only the Lord can be worshipped like this. And Joshua doesn't know. All he knows is this is a very bright guy with a big sword and he's hitting the ground. And how do we know it's the Lord? How do we know it's a theophany? How do we know it's an appearance of God himself as a man? Because he says the same thing that he says to Moses in chapter 3, verse 5. Verse with verse, the Bible commentating on itself. You see this in Isaiah 6. In the year that Uzziah died, I saw Yahweh. It's the name of God, Yahweh. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His train was filling the temple. Remember, he was sitting on the throne. He saw an exalted man on the throne. Ezekiel, I mean, we can go on. Abraham encountering the visitors. I think, what is it, chapter 18 of Genesis. We have these appearances of God as a man. So you see, you had these intimations, these revelations, and I must move along. The Old Testament begins to introduce God, not as a single-person God, but as a tri-person God. Then, in the New Testament, the revelation comes to full light. Only in the New Testament do we begin to understand by revelation that God is tri-person. Only in the New Testament. If it weren't for the revelation of Christ, we would not understand, nor would we think this way about the old. It is the new that brings commentary and understanding and revelation to the old, which is in the old, but the new must have it, must uh, be looked at and understood and received as truth in order for us to get the old. And once we do that, then we begin to see a marvelous transition and a moving of God toward this greatest of all revelation that I, in fact, what I started to tell you and show you in Genesis 1, I am showing you in the birth of this child, I am a triune God. <clears throat> the revelation of God's triperson. You see, New Testament says God is one. G John, John 17, 3, Jesus said, the one true God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6, there is one God. 1 Timothy 2, 5, there is one God. Remember in Matthew 28, 19, what did Jesus say? Go out and make disciples, baptizing them what? In the name of the? No, he doesn't say Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You don't know your Bible. You go back and look at it. Look at 28, 19. For those of you who think it says Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you're absolutely wrong. And I want you to do something with this verse because it's critical. It's critical. You see, because when you read these verses... 
If this weren't the truth from God, this information could not be this consistent over 4,000 years and 40 authors, most of whom didn't even know one another and not, had not even read a whole lot of what the other guy said. There's no computer here trying to keep all this together as a linear progression. This is impossible to do. Now let's read it together. Baptizing them and then in what? In the name of, first of all, stop, in the name. Is that singular or plural? Is it singular or plural? Name is singular, names are plural. So what does he have? Singular or plural? In the one name. Now tell me what it says. In the name of what? The Father. What does it say second? The Son. And what does it say third? The Holy Spirit. You see, the article specifically says, that, remember the article, the and a, definite, indirect, indefinite article, a is indefinite, the is definite, the, that. A, well, you know, the, that. A, well, you know. Okay, we have a definite article here. We have a definite article in front of the word Father, in front of the word Son, in front of the word Spirit. What does that mean? Jesus is saying that there are three specific and distinct persons in the one person of God. Had it been said in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you could have said, well, the God's name is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's just one, but he has all kind of different ways of moving. He moves as a Father one time and as a Son one time and the Holy Spirit one time. It's called modalism. That is not what Jesus said. He said there are three distinct persons. So when you say that again, do not say it wrong. Say it the way the truth is. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Greek emphasizes the definite article. How do I know that? Because I asked Evan May. <laughs> well, you know, I had to go to the Greek to find out that was correct, but it is surely correct. You see, we just thought, hey, look, it'd be nice. It'd be nice just to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is a major revelation that in order to be born again, you must be born again by the activity of one God in three persons. The God the Father willing it, God the Son producing it at the cross and bringing it forth through the, uh, the resurrection, and God the Holy Spirit applying it and making it real in my life. Can you say amen? <clears throat> Although the revelation of God's triunity began in the Old Testament, it came into full light in the birth of the Lord Jesus. Listen to Luke 135. And the angel answered her to Mary, remember, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You have all three persons of the Trinity right there in that verse. Spirit, Son of God, and God. Do you see it? Everybody sees that? All three. People are still trying to figure out, but I don't know if the New Testament teaches Trinity. There it is, right in front of you. Right in front of you. In Joseph, Joseph is told you shall call his name Jesus because you shall save his people from their sin. Okay, fine. What does Jesus mean? It's the Anglification, the English of Yahshua or Yeshua, Joshua, right? Joshua, Yeshua, or Joshua. That's what this is, Jesus. It's just the English term. Where did the name come from? Yah. What is Genesis, um, Exodus 3, 14? Moses said, what's your name? What shall I tell them? He says, tell them that Yah hath sent you. I am. Tell them that Yah hath sent you. I am that I am. What name shall I say? Tell them Yah hath sent you. That's the great name of God. I am the ever-present one. There's no history with God. There's no past. There's no future. It's just all present. 
They had no concept of this in those days. They couldn't have come up with and created a theology like this. This is crazy. TC, it's crazy. This is totally crazy. That's why it's the truth. It's totally unnatural. And then the word Hosea, where word, remember Hosea, do you have the reference from Numbers in your book? Numbers 13, do you have that reference in there? Moses changes the name of Joshua. I thought, we, I thought maybe, let me see if I put it in here. Okay, well, we don't. I think it's Numbers 13, 16. Hosea, the son of Nun. Joshua says, I'm calling you, I'm sorry, Moses says, I'm calling you Joshua. Hosea means salvation. You put the name Yah and Hosea together, together you come with Yahshua Yah, Yah Hosea however you would say that it's the anglification Jesus it means Yahweh saves or it means the Lord our salvation or it means the Lord saves in his very name is a proclamation that this is none other than the God of glory having become a man at the baptism of Jesus God publicly pronounces Jesus to be the son when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying the heavens open and the Holy Spirit you see the Trinity here Luke 3 21 22 do you see the Trinity now stop for a moment did you see the Trinity look for it Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and the Father's voice you see God is one in his being but three divine and distinct persons the Father the Son and the Holy Spirit each one of these persons shares the very same nature and essence and substance but each one is distinguished only by his role and the relationship that exists within the triune God the father is the father because how he relates to the son the son is the son because how he relates to the father and the spirit is a spirit because how he relates to the father and the son that's where these names come from these are role names these are not you know the father has it's I don't want to go into it you're gonna get confused. it doesn't matter this is just role and relationship terminology so what is Ephesians 1 3 to 14 says and by the way if you don't know those verses I recommend you read them once a week verses 3 to 6 the father wills our salvation verses 7 to 12 the son produces our salvation at the cross verses 13 to 14 the Holy Spirit applies we are the Arabon the down payment the guarantee he is that in us he's a tithe the 10% you know isn't it interesting that God gives us his 10% in the Holy Spirit surely he gives us the whole Holy Spirit you know what I mean all that God is and all that God ever will be is right here in this room at this moment but he's also over there in that room at this moment <laughs> all that God is and all that he ever will be and has been is here today but he's also a thousand years ago He's also there God is fully and absolutely with us completely totally right here but he's also over there now and then and whenever now if this is an understanding that you think ancient or anybody has on his own you need to take an aspirin <laughs> and see your doctor you see, the community in God, the community of involvement of all three persons in God is our salvation. This is how it happened. Now look, in saving us, God shares with us the very same love that he has within himself, bringing us into the same relationship of love that he enjoys within himself. 
is God's purpose, <clears throat> that we should share in that community of fellowship that God is within himself. This is our highest calling. You see, because of this, because this is what God wants to declare to us in our salvation. Everything that John teaches, and I say this to say that, as we go through John, keep this in mind. And when John begins to talk about loving one another, why? Because that love is exemplary of the love in the Godhead. The joy, it is exemplary of the joy of the Godhead. The peace of the Godhead. The satisfaction of the God, etc. You see, because all of this is who God is. Why is truth important? Because it discloses who God is. Why is unity important? Because it shows the unity among the persons of God. It's not about us. It's about... Why is fellowship important in the body of Christ? Why? Why is it that God is not for a lonely Christian never having fellowship? Because fellowship pictures the fellowship that God has within himself among the three persons. Why is loving the brother important? Because it mirrors the love within the community of God among the three persons. Why is obedience important? Because it shows the Son's obedience for the Father's will and the Spirit's obedience for the will of the Father and the Son. That's why it's critical. Not so we can have a better life or God will be pleased. It's about Him. You see, everything about our life is to be a disclosure of who He is and how He is within Himself, which is His triunity in action and revelation. So in essence, John's letter is about God's love, the love of the Father for the Son that we experience and express in the church. This is to be displayed through our fellowship and how we walk together. See, this is what Jesus, and I won't read it now, this is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 22 to 26. That the oneness of the Godhead would be experienced in the oneness of the church. The fellowship that exists within the Godhead would be expressed, experienced and expressed in the fellowship of the church. So when the world sees us, they are seeing the reality of a great and only truthful, only God, our triune majesty. That's what this is all about. Such a love is possible only in a triune God whom the Father's love sends the Son and whom the Son willingly comes to pay the price. And that's applied by His Spirit. See, this is God's great joy and our great blessing that we are the vessels of this great, glorious God. Next week, we're going to be going into chapter 1, verse 5 through 218. I want you to read this, if you would, several times. And as you read this, read it within the context of God's triunity. Read it within the context of what we just said. <clears throat> and when you see words like light and fellowship and love, begin to realize this is who God is. And we are to be this way because we are to be the image bearers of our great God. See you next week.